Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Deb Roberts and I am the host for season two of the Mind Medicine Australia's podcast. Before we begin with this week's guest, a reminder that Mind Medicine Australia's focus is on the development and the use of evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies within regulated healthcare systems. We do not, though, encourage the use of psychedelic medicines outside of this context, and we do not support the use of these substances in any way that is unlawful. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only. None of the content herein constitutes medical advice. Guests' views are their own and do not represent the views of Mind Medicine Australia, and individuals need to discuss their individual healthcare needs with their healthcare providers. Thank you for listening. Um, All right. Well, we might start. I thought that um, even before um, I introduce you and um, we begin our conversation today um, of just, uh, it's useful for me too, but just to maybe, or whoever's listening, allowing um, just um, about 30 seconds or so and just to kind of um, land sometimes and my eyes are closed for a moment. They don't have to be, but just, and especially if you're driving or uh, doing an activity, but otherwise just noticing um, for a moment what's touching the ground. Um, You know, there's, um, even for me, that notion of uh, I can be kind of led, um, uh, the wind can take me uh, different places. So that opportunity of just um, feet on the ground and just kind of, I guess, uh, reminding um, us that we have a connection with the elements, you know, whether it be earth, um, water, fire, air or ether, um, but just allowing that earth element to kind of ground us today um, for our conversation. And taking a big maybe sigh or breath out and then just when you're ready um, and if your eyes have already been open, that's fine. Just otherwise allowing an opportunity. It's just really nice to um, be at this juncture for me personally. Uh, Tommy, um, you have been the podcast host for Mind Medicine Australia since the first publication, which was October 4th. I don't know if you remember that. Nope. 2000. <laughs> I was about to say 2001. 2021. Um, and interestingly, that week is mental, as mental Health Week, and you probably maybe knew that at the time, um, but as a reminder, um, I think it's the 10th um, this year, that the Global Mental Health Day. But obviously a really important um, aspect of what Mind Medicine Australia was providing in the community. And today is a really important moment for me personally because um, the podcast series two, um, whatever that is going to uh, entail, um, I thought it was a really important um, time to actually connect with you who has you've done such a great job in my opinion and I know through Mind Medicine um, Australia um, people have been very pleased with the way you conducted yourself in the podcast and I mean you did a lot of work a lot of background work so first of all hello Tommy hello thank you <laughs> that's a lovely introduction I appreciate that well I decided that I'm going to let you also um be really the one in this moment to um, introduce um, yourself because, yes, you've been the podcast host for Mind Medicine Australia and um, 
I really thought the notion of um, connection with the person you're speaking with, so I'm, you know, we're speaking together, um, and the aspect of a deeper listening. Um, it seemed as though, this is my idea, um, uh, in terms of the way I saw you, um, I wasn't seeing you, I was listening to you, but you really, you were really listening to the um, the person that was on the other end of the Zoom or Google Meets, or um, if you did it face-to-face, I didn't see many of those, but it really... Um, was clear how much you listened um, and also for, with your questions and directions um, from the person um, that you were speaking with. And that says a lot to me. Um, and I wanted to today offer a conversation but also a connection between both of us um, in terms of also how um, the importance of listening, deep listening, often our minds are in all other places, um, and how important that is in this day and age. Mm. It's a lovely place to start. I find that it's interesting because I bring, I think of my grandfather and father both in a large group context. They're very quiet people. And all like throughout my childhood and certainly adolescence and teenage years, I was also very quiet, particularly in group settings. I was never the most boisterous or a loud person um, and that was fine. Like I, I saw no, no issue with that. Yeah. Um, and I think I really appreciated that more growing up and as my father, uh, sorry, my grandfather passed away just before I left for India, um, I remember saying my goodbyes to him and I was just thinking about like, you know, what has he taught me and it's that, you know, some of the most powerful things are the unspoken things. Mm-hmm. And I think just his loving kindness without words really spilled into my existence as well. And I found that whilst I wasn't, you know, you know, the most popular kid in school because I wasn't very loud, but mm-hmm. I would fit in just fine because I was just there in, in, in presence. Um, and... You often think of like, well, what makes a good interviewer or podcaster or anything like that? It's it's not how much the person can talk, but it's how much they can extract information from the other person. Yes. And so it sprung to me that to, to start a podcast, to obviously learn from the experts, um, but not to try and prove anything, just to absorb as much as I could from the person I was speaking to. Yep. And... Deep listening is is definitely something that doesn't come natural to most people. Right. I feel like there's just like that reactive um, vibration from what you're like seeing and doing with with other people. It's just like the reaction, and a lot of people's reaction is verbal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that through things like meditative practice and when we have certain stimuli in our environment, obviously there's an initial reaction or a judgment or might not be a judgment, but a a reaction to it to just firstly suppress that and then analyse almost like the the logical part of our self that just puts things in hindsight and then takes a step back and then then goes forward. So it's a nice place to start, deep listening, and I think that is what has helped me and made this such an interesting journey for me is that 
I've just been so fascinated with this field and some of the people that I've been able to speak to through using this podcast is, I mean, there's, there's not much more I can add to what they're talking about too. Like they're absolutely amazing people who've done the work for sometimes decades. And so just adding little bits of questions to, to keep them talking is, is... Well, that's very modest of you, mm. <laughs> very modest. Um, I think that it's interesting you say that um, it's in the nonverbal um, so often and even obviously listening to even us at this moment, um, the um, there is so much around connection, I think, that isn't verbal, um, and that you just demonstrated that, and that's really... Um, an important um, reason why contemplative practice has merit. Um, and even if we have contemplative practice in some regard, whether it be meditation, mindfulness, whatever it might be, um, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that you have um, the capacity for deeper listening. We actually, I think, already have a, a, a deep capacity, but we are so, um, you know, from stimuli – um, we are so inundated from the external world as well as um, our own internal space. And so I think it's nice that you bring up the um, – I, I almost feel like it's sometimes a tension – not a tension – tension between uh, the verbal, which is what we're literally doing right now, um, and how perhaps um, our nonverbal part of ourselves – which can obviously that silence, um, you know, sometimes you're not silent when you're sitting in contemplative practice. There's all kinds of <laughs> noise, right? Um, so I guess today I think that um, a, as a thread, um, I just think connectivity is an important um, broad base um, that I thought we could maybe utilize through the um, through. Our conversation today, but I, you, I would like to um, hear about and for those um, who haven't um, heard from Tommy before, in terms of how you got into the, um, you know, being on the other end of um, speaking to, you know, really a, a huge number of scientists. I mean, not I think there were twenty six episodes you did, but to me, twenty six episodes of like the international. Um, figures who actually, from a research point of view, and who are leading the field in psychedelic um, space. So would you like to just maybe give a brief of your background and how you got to be um, then the podcast host? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, but just on, on your note around like listening, I think you started to allude to that a little bit, and I'll, I'll come back to your question and it will link. Um, but listening to oneself not as in the nonverbal way of listening to oneself is something that our society is becoming more disconnected from because we have so much available stimuli to shift our attention away from our internal state yep. and we have less and less understanding of our internal state because we're constantly drawn by other things. Not necessarily reacting, mm. but it's almost like it's more comfortable to not listen to what's happening inside and just continually get pulled by our environment. And because humans are so reliant on our sight, most of yeah. the time we're just distracted by what we see. And it's like this it's like this salience network that's inside of our brain that's like scanning our environment for things that might 
bring us joy, it might bring us nutrition, it might bring us water, connection, but it's seeking. Our eyesight is to see things and to interact with that environment, mm. to connect with that environment. But because we're in this age where our attention is getting pulled by so many different things, it mm. becomes just the norm. And so that attentional deep listening to oneself is being disconnected. Yep. And that is how I kind of fell into this space was through just my interest in, I suppose, introspection and understanding myself and my place in the world. I remember being a child and walking outside with my brother and father and looking up at the stars and just like that feeling of awe, just like, what? Like, Mm. I remember pretty early on, like, Definitely in primary school and, and certainly throughout high school, I, I, was, I wanted to be a quantum physicist in, in high school. Um, I, I laugh about it now because I didn't enjoy maths all that much. I was good at maths, but I didn't <laughs> love it. Um, but I was just fascinated by just what reality is and how there's different perspectives of reality. You can look at reality through you know, biology and physical matter, or so we think is physical matter. Or we can look at it through physics or how particles and atoms are interacting, um, or we can look at through more contemporary or, or kind of ancient wisdom through meditation and, and multiple different practices can push us into these more permeable states of that nonverbal connection mm-hmm. and understanding of what really is this life and this reality. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been like gravitated <laughs> quantum physics coming in, um, gravitated <laughs> towards truth, I suppose. And, I mean, there's relative and there's absolute truth and, and absolute truth is our existence, our life is our consciousness and then relative truth is everything in between. But I've always been fascinated about what we are and what we're doing here mm-hmm. um, as a consciousness, as conscious beings, as humans, as Beings on a planet yep. revolving around this dark material, and it fascinated me a lot. And I was, I would love watching documentaries about astronomy and astrophysics and quantum physics and these kind of things. And I remember starting like a meditation practice okay. when I was about probably seventeen, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and as any seventeen-year-old, you just kind of don't really know what you're doing. You kind of hear about meditation. There's a lot of baggage or, or what people think meditation is, um, but it's a lot of things. Um, mindfulness is, is like, I suppose, the broad sense of connecting to yourself and our consciousness being pulled by the energies and that somehow our consciousness is always stronger than the energies that pull on it. So we're getting travelled through all these thoughts and feelings and sensations, mm-hmm. but there's this overarching almost connection between ourselves and matter, mm-hmm. as you could say. And so my meditative practice was around like trying to just understand, like where do you look when you're meditating? Where are you looking? Are you following what you're seeing, what you're thinking, how you're feeling internally, what is internal? Are you looking at your bodily sensation? And so I was exploring that and not really knowing too much about the history of it, not really calling it meditation, but just 
being observant per se. And I started reading various different books on meditation and philosophy and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then I was really interested in science as well. I loved like biology through high school and started looking into things like neuroscience and biology, all these different looking in the scientific literature and trying to understand it that way. And it was through, I mean, I studied exercise science and nutrition because I was interested in human performance and sport and what the underlying biology, how I could use that to better my own health because ultimately it's, you know, health is paramount. It is above all else and that encapsulates mental health, physical health, spiritual health. Mm -hmm. That's what we're all striving for. Everything in between is just what it is but ultimately we are just wanting to be the best mental physical spiritual beings that we can be and after doing that degree I had a longing for learning I remember finishing the degree thinking okay I'm glad that that's done now what am I going to learn about and I was really interested in meditation and neuroscience and so I was reading research papers from around and one of the ones that really sprung out to me was the uh, comparison study that was conducted by Robin Card Harris and Co. I think there are a few other researchers involved. I can't remember all of them, but there are quite a number of them. And it was a comparison study between long-term meditators, uh, non-meditators, um, and then some were giving a psychedelic agent. I think it was psilocybin in in those studies. And they just did a brain imaging scan, fMRI scan of the brain. And they're all told to meditate. So the meditators told to meditate, non-meditators told to meditate. And then there were the other groups were meditators given a psychedelic agent and then non-meditators given a psychedelic agent. And they just wanted to see what was happening with the yep. brain. And that really like sparked a lot of interest in um, the default mode network, which is uh, a series of connections between the brain that seems to be most active in a not a restful state, but when we're just not engaged in anything in particular. I kind of mentioned before about how we're always scanning our environment and looking for something to do. Um, And when we're not looking for anything to do, that mode or that network is active. It could be thinking, it could be various different things. And so what they discovered was that this default state seemed to be diminished or at least quietened down through the meditators when they were told to meditate, whereas the non-meditators who were told to meditate who didn't have a psychedelic agent had very active default mode networks. I was like, there's a lot going on that's probably processing lots of things. What am I doing tomorrow? This, this, mm. this, this. And I thought that a lot of that just almost rises up from the subconscious. Mm-hmm. And until we deal with it properly, it has every reason to be active, I suppose. Um, but what was the big finding of this was that the non-meditators who were given a psychedelic agent also had diminished default mode network activity. And not a whole lot was understood about this network previously. Okay. And But that really sparked a lot of more research into the default mode network now. It's like a very common thing that people know about as um, one of the big networks and, and connections between the brain between brain regions that is thought to be part of the therapeutic process around 
psychedelic therapy and, and, and meditation and things like that. And it was through that that I became really interested in psychedelics and, and what their potential was because I knew how much transformation people were getting from meditating for, a, not necessarily for a long time, but just, you know, five to ten minutes a day. It has notable effects on how we feel internally. And I think a big reason is that we're actually, because most of the time we're closing our eyes in meditation and a lot of um, psychedelic journeys are recommended to be blindfolded as well because Mm -hmm. instead of our attention being so much about our visual world, it becomes about our internal internal world world. and what is being represented there. Mm. And it seems that we're able to make sense of that internal world and that representation of how these thoughts that seem to come from nowhere turn into emotion and how emotion can have a positive or a negative valence. So it might make us feel really good. We might be thinking about something that was wonderful or it might be like a reoccurring thought that makes us feel horrible yeah. and is debilitating. And I don't think we need to tell anyone or prove to anyone that thoughts can change our feelings very powerfully. But they do. And unless we address them and really connect with them, then they're going to repeatedly cause the same result. So that's how I became interested in psychedelics Mm -hmm. because of the similarities between meditation and the neuroscientific perspective of that. Were you able to, just on that, were you able to, from the meditation or the experience that you developed um, and the practice, I guess, into, I guess, the first few years, were you, did you... Because you have um, an interest in the scientific um, method in general, um, the experience itself with meditation for, that you had, could you were you, could you see some of the, the findings from that study? Could you actually, in the translation to your inner connection and what was going on with you with your meditation, um, were you? able to notice as well that there's parts of the brain, your own brain, that were kind of uh, at least either a little bit more subdued or not firing, you know, where the default mode network is, you know, quite loud. Could you, as a scientist, almost translate that experience of meditating, your meditation, um, and actually seeing that happen, seeing the actual reduction in um, maybe critical thought, you know, being the critic or whatever modes that are, we're firing in your brain. Um, Just wondering it's, which is tricky, but translating your kind of scientific approach and the way you were looking at those studies, but with your, your practice yourself, could you? I think, I mean, even just to label a thought as a connection of, neural impulses is hard to conclude. Yeah. My philosophy on the brain is that what we can say is that when certain areas light up, it, I guess, brings a certain state of mind. So during those certain states, we, you know, you can correlate that to subjectivity and what the person is feeling during when this part of the brain is lighting up or when these our parts are connecting to each other when they're not usually. But I think when you 
meditate, you realize how wild your mind really is. <laughs> I, th- say, I think the wild that's west. Like, it's it's very messy. Yeah. Very, very messy. Mm-hmm. From a neuroscientific perspective, I think if we're wanting to change our connections or brain in any deliberate way, mm-hmm. it requires attention. Mm-hmm. And that might seem obvious, but it's essential. If we want to I mean there's a there's a big buzz around like neuroplasticity and the ability of the brain to rewire its connections and remove its connections if they're not serving us in any positive way that attention is a prerequisite for anything to change and through other like neuroscientific studies you can think about like i guess neurotransmitters like acetylcholine which kind of highlights a certain uh connections or or areas of the brain that are almost highlighted for change Mm -hmm. and so when we're like listening you might have part of the auditory cortex is like highlighting oh yeah that particular sound frequency is different to what I'm used to and it'll highlight that and then in states of deep rest or sleep that it'll start reforming its connections. So I think that attentional aspect is critical if we're wanting to kind of, I mean, in neuroscience, this concept of long-term depression and long-term potentiation, which is basically just means um, making new connections or deleting old connections. And I've been recently reading a, a book called Live Wired, um, really a, a, by a David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist, but his whole concept around like the brain rewiring itself—it's—it's it's always trying to change. And he's got a rather. I'm slightly digressing, but I'll, I will bring it back to to your question. Is the reason why we we sleep or we dream? I should say the reason why we dream is because the visual cortex is trying to preserve its space because if it doesn't remain active, other areas will dominate. And it's been proven by other things. Like when we're, if we go blind, then our auditory and olfactory cortex actually take over that space. And so that representation in our brain then turns into more sensitive smell and hearing. And I find that if, we are bringing our attention to thoughts. Again, if we can say that certain connections and impulses relate to thought directly, that through our attention, and either we, we either suppress it or we go along with the thought, mm-hmm. um, but unless we're fully aware and are fully embracing that state of mind that we're in, then how can we expect it's going to change by itself? Which it, which it isn't. And so I, f- I found that through my own meditative practice, I, I would notice that a thought might be recurring, but the more you really embody that thought, the less, I guess, emotional strength or weight that it had over you. And this is like, this is ties into like how they're working with like post-traumatic stress disorder and how they're treating that through, through MDMA in that the MDMA state allows that shift in perspective of you might have the same pathway, the same thought. You might not be able to get rid of that forever, but what you can change is how it's being represented emotionally. Mm-hmm. And if we're in a certain state, so we're in a calm state mm-hmm. and we're meditating and these thoughts come up and then shift our state, mm-hmm. 
And if then we're actively bringing our state of mind back to a calm and quiescent feeling, then the emotional weight of that thought can be shifted. And I think that's a real power of meditation mm-hmm. in that we can almost not necessarily remove thought. I think that's that's something that probably might happen with, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of hours of practice with meditation to really reduce yourself to next to no thought. Um, and thought, when we think of it, is you know, it can be language or it can be feeling yeah, too. And thoughts aren't yeah. just about the chatter. No. There are other things as well. It's It's our body or our brain trying to make its best guess about what's happening internally. Mm-hmm. And because we're taught language when we are growing up and we represent sound as things and over time we have this whole language which is a beautiful thing and i think one of the most beautiful things about language is that we th- it we we think it, it's about being able to communicate with each other but i think what's most beautiful about language is to be able to communicate with ourselves and we're trying to make sense of what's happening inside of us and i find that mental ill health is our best thought representation of what's happening internally so something inside of us is not going right. There might be who whether we're missing something. Is it nutrition that we're missing? Are we dehydrated? Are we not connecting with our mother, our father, our people around us? And all of these, it comes back to health. It's always coming back to health and what is good health. I know I'm diverging, but it's all no. kind of... Um, no, I think that, um, no, it speaks volumes. I think that uh, it, it's interesting in uh, yoga... Uh, uh, in Sanskrit, um, Chitta Vritti Naroda, which is you know um, one of the kind of excerpts of um, the of the text of the Yoga Sutras, and it's literally defined as the cessation of the fluctuations in your mind, and it's that in in a way cessation stopping the fluctuations, um, the the movements in um, the mind, and yet we know that as you know whether we practice modalities like yoga or sitting and meditation or uh, meditative practice or reflective practice and contemplative practice um, that it is like you're you know when you just said the mind is wild that was the really thing that um, lit lights me up in the sense of wow okay now we're talking in the sense of it is wild it's very I mean in in except in fairly enlightened um, beings, and there are those people in the world, human beings, most of the time, it's wild. (laughs) And there's so much, even with psychedelic-assisted therapy and even the reason why both of us have been involved, maybe even, you know, the interest in mind medicine and the potential of um, psychedelics being one way in which to, um, as we've talked about, where that, you know, the default mode network, and I, I don't want to go necessarily, I know that from a science point of view and being able to notice, okay, well, this these parts aren't turned on as much or for a little while they're subdued so that other patterns in the brain can, you know, the neurochemistry can um, be activated in, in a different way. And so the potential of uh, understanding that wild, the wild, in a way, and how we can and go in a direction of, um, I'm thinking when you said, you know, ill health, um, whereby 
I wondered when you came, you have an interest, you had curiosity about meditation, etc. Were you, and I think you stood 17 when you started that um, kind of interest, and I know you were interested in science and, you know, stars and the universe and all that stuff. So you uh, obviously have a very curious, you're a curious-natured person. Um, do you, was there a reason why you were drawn to, specifically to meditation were you having was your mind in a wild space or were you um uh i guess we were talking about well-being were you feeling well and then wanted to go kind of beyond or and the reason i'm also in this conversation like for myself having mental ill health for a a period of time as i was growing you know into my teens and etc there were other um, drivers, let's say, for me to be finding these other practices. Is there in your, um, I, I was just imagining or wondering, oh, what got you, um, or was it just curiosity? My, um, not just, was it curiosity? Mm, it sounded I, like I was making a qualitative judgment there, <laughs> I apologize, but just interested in really, you know, was the mind really active? And so you were seeking something that, um, yeah, just, you know, maybe just exp- mm. expand on that if you're happy to. Yeah, I mean, I like, I would say everybody, I would say everybody has experienced mental ill health, mm. whether for a very short period of time or whether for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. And as I was mentioning earlier, that our thought patterns and emotions that go along with mental ill health may be our best representation of that something isn't right. Mm -hmm. And so we have these bad feelings that manifest inside of us to say there needs to be something changed here Mm -hmm. or I'm going to have to keep reproducing this experience. And Mm -hmm. it makes it really difficult to figure out where that signal is coming from and why that signal is coming from because life is so complex. Mm -hmm. Human mind is very complex. It's hard to really understand what's going on, particularly when so much of our brain is subconscious and it just kind of arises out of seemingly thin air and we have to deal with it when it comes and it's like, oh, why do I feel depressed today? Then you try and think, like, well, when did that come from? Is there a reason for that? Sometimes Mm -hmm. there's not, sometimes there is. Mm -hmm. And originally my interest in meditation was just out of curiosity, just fascination of reality but it did become a tool for me to use when going through difficult times Mm -hmm. of you know we're we're really drawn into these emotions and feelings when they come Mm. and we have coping mechanisms um for the better or worse Mm -hmm. that serve us to either bring that emotion down or, or push it away um or sometimes bring it closer depending on on the context that we're in and and all kinds of things. So originally it was out of curiosity, just fascinated with nature and reality and and how that came to be. But as everyone goes through difficult times, Mm -hmm. it became a tool Tool. to just really go in and try and understand where these emotions were coming from and, and, and deal with them face first. That's not to say I do that all the time because there's many times when... You know, we know intuitively that we should be doing meditation or we should mm. probably do our best do, do our best health practice, but then 
we go back to the old habits and we suppress it and we maybe use pharmacology to try and change our state or maybe we go on our phone or maybe we watch a movie and, and all of those. There's no right or wrong answer, but it's just our way of dealing with the situation. It's like, okay, so this sensation has arrived inside of us. What am I going to do with that? And the most uncomfortable thing is to, you know, fully embody it. You don't yes. want to. You d- it doesn't feel good. So meditation in that case is seems like the worst thing at that very moment. But, of course, eventually, if we're continuously suppressing these negatively mm-hmm. charged emotions, then they've got nowhere to go other than to come back mm. at sometimes random times or sometimes the environment sparks that emotion. But, yeah, originally curiosity. Well, I think that is um, – it's. I mean, it's, it's actually delightful to hear that in terms of – allowing because curiosity is one of these aspects that if we can keep that um alive um is one of the very aspects that keeps us connected back to our connection kind of thread um whether it be with people or with self verbal non-verbal but that sense of curiosity kind of oh that isn't black and white there's not just necessarily polarities there is actually the curiosity driving that. And I think that having that before then having challenges, um, so to speak, like that everyone, I think it's great that you brought that back to everyone has mental ill health. Um, Even the statistics that, you know, Mind Medicine give, you know, the latest in terms of who is affected. It's almost like, well, if this is the majority of the population, um, maybe our framework in how we look at mental ill health um, and even phasal, you know, phases of or short, what we would say is, you know, short term, you know, I've had a bad day to debilitating, um, you know, whatever that might be, a mental illness on that kind of pointy end. And I think the the notion of curiosity that drove you to meditation um, is there an example whereby that you could think of or ex, um, um, just describe whereby you actually felt a healing experience from, you know, either an individual meditation session or a specific, um, you know, uh, uh, technique that over time that you've learned? Is there something that you could describe of, you know what, utilizing this um or where I was, or, you know, sometimes I don't want to like, you know, whether you were in nature or something that you were, you, you actually really physiologically, mentally, um, emotionally, uh, really experienced a healing, uh, either, either in an individual or just a healing experience from the meditation or. Mm. I think the long-term benefits or healing powers of meditation are subtle but i also think that perspective change can happen suddenly as well but that it's a perspective change that lasts over a very long time and i think it's that intrinsic knowingness that everything that we experience is just a flow of energy and representing different patterns and that our conscious awareness makes contact with that pattern of energy and experiences generated from that 
whether we can point to the brain or the body or combination of all of those factors creates that experience. But I think what meditation teaches is that one, our thoughts are not truly who we are, but they are what we're pulled by. And that that long-term change is about the perspective of knowing that we aren't who we think we are. And being able to sit back into that when we're pulled into these thoughts and emotions and we do everyday life, every day, <laughs> that we're pulled into different emotions. And, you know, so I think like even long-term meditators would probably speak to the fact that we still have to be selves and we still have to engage with the world. We still have to talk and, you know, chop wood, carry water, as, as they would say. And it's on reflection of when we take a step back that we fit back into ourself. Mm -hmm. So we do, 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 and then we be. And we still need to go and eat food. We still need to go and get water. We still need to sleep. We still need to connect with other people and do all those things. And that takes us out of ourself in some way. Mm -hmm. And obviously the self has all kinds of connotations and meanings, but I mean just that self-representation of the human being that we are. And then we come back after the work is done and it's there that those emotions might come up. Mm -hmm. It's not often that we're in the middle of a task that we feel very depressed or anxious or think, oh, we might feel anxious, but the, the, the agitation to finish a task or whatever it might be, but certainly depressive symptoms tend to come when we're not doing anything. And it's mm. when we finish a task, it's like, okay, we have this moment of respite where we're just not doing too much. And I suppose that's why I found the default mode work so interesting was because why are we looking at our whole life? Because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, as long as I keep busy, I don't think about it, right? Mm, I just, absolutely. as long as I keep busy, I I'm, I'm, I'm feel great. Yeah, it's like, a yeah, lot of well, people say that. Well, then when you're not busy, then you find things to do to be busy again mm -hmm. and to be pulled by your environment once again. So, I mean, we can go through life and not really dive deep into ourselves and, and understand what's going on and we can be healthy. Mm -hmm. But I think there's just that slight spiritual self that's missing from a lot of people. They might be physically well and their biology might represent good health, but they just might feel this slightly missing piece, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what our society is missing and why psychedelics could be that token to bring insight into that perspective change that can be brought about through multiple means but psychedelics is one thing that for someone who's severely depressed over a very long time or is really really struggling it's very hard for you to just tell them to go and meditate yes. because just taking that first step even outside go for a walk go exercise is so much harder than it would seem and to expect someone in the depths of <clears throat> that experience to do that is a monumental task Absolutely. and it's just getting to that first step and I feel like the reason why I've been so passionate about psychedelics is because they can bring about that glimpse of insight into it's like okay now I see 
what's going on inside of me and I can make changes to my life whether appropriate and I have this perspective that it will last for the rest of my life and I know that deep inside of me there's more than just what my emotions and thoughts are telling me. Have you, um, just on that notion of um, having, uh, whether it be specifically with meditation or through another means, but whereby you've been able to, at a, a, a future time from when you were meditating or had a, a particular experience, whereby you're able to bring that memory or experience to a time when you were not feeling um, well. Absolutely. It becomes yeah. the coping mechanism. Yeah. It, when that kind of frame or perspective is like learned per se, and it's not to say you need enlightenment or this or that, yeah. it's just to, to, to recognize that how we feel is our body's best representation of what it needs. And we're trying to make sense of that as the mm. conscious awareness of it. Yep but we're still heavily connected with it as that heavy feeling that we get. And by just almost taking a step back and just remembering that there is a state Mm. just past this Mm -hmm. that you can fall back into. And, I mean, I think it's just just taking a moment. Mm -hmm. The micro moments. Yeah. Yeah. And being able, I think that notion of re, I mean, I have just a general, oh, uh, generally I have that interest in how do you um, bring back um, a feeling state or emotional state um, of well-being or balance or homeostasis or um, um, whatever way you want to, contentment, and when you're not feeling in that state or when the mind and or body um, is kind of not not in its uh, as functional um, in that well state, uh, how to cultivate that past experience that you bring up as, um, you know, something that was toward our well-being. So as an example, um, um, whereby... Uh, as you said, having a meditation experience would, um, and I was going to ask you, maybe also you might like to, um, I don't know if you want to share, in terms of the somatic experience, in terms of the like body work. I know in yoga, you know, obviously there's aspects where you're doing asanas and movements and so forth and moving energy around the body. The idea is from a yogic point of view is to, you know, go through the body, allow, we're meant to be flowing through, not have stagnation. Mm. Um, and so I wondered whether or not um, that you've had an experience or you wanted to shed a little bit more light in terms of, um, yeah, just how you can, how you bring back those aspects um, either that is in a newer well state um, or that you can draw from the past, but what you do maybe in a, you know, daily or what your kind of routine is in terms of um, either sustaining a well state or when you have, um not been in a great um, state of mind or body um, and bringing that into that direction of balance or health. So you're asking, are there any specific practices that I do to 
deal with myself or emotions yeah. that arise? In term, yeah, so if you – no, I'm, it's more of an example. Let's say you're not in a uh, well state, like in a just a generally either body or the mind not feeling great. Um, is there a pattern that you either notice, um, okay – not feeling great, um, and then I'm going to initiate um, some of these deliberate uh, ways in which cultivate well-being um, and how maybe that's changed over time. I was thinking more in my head of like, you know, what uh, body work versus, you know, it's, we're not necessarily as listeners mm. might be thinking meditation. Are you seated cross-legged and doing accounting, you know, breath work meditation? Or do you, what is it that has kind of really in the past or that helps when you're kind of off balance? I think for me, exercise okay. and movement yep. is what I wanted to get into. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> the most powerful okay. yep. and reliable source of for you yep. changing right. your state. And mm -hmm. my movement patterns have changed massively over the past decade what have they come from what it just maybe give a few different yeah so where, where originally like through high school um i was very like skinny and quite mm -hmm. fragile mm -hmm. and i played footy uh, yep. aussie rules football mm -hmm. australian rules football for the can't um, be too fragile if you're playing aussie rules football i've got no well, i was very timid i was okay. very timid playing okay. i loved it i was yeah. very skillful but i would never really go hard yeah like I was timid in that sense. Got I was it. like, I wanted to build a bit of strength. Yes. So that's what originally got me into like, okay, yeah. So you know, going to the gym, physicality. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to be a bit stronger so right. I could have more confidence um, playing that sport. And then through training in the gym, yes. I just figured out, or not figured out, but it just came naturally. You have such a beautiful connection to muscles. Yes. Like <laughs> such a huge part of our body. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these you know, little muscles just don't get woken up. And, you know, obviously it's connections to the muscles in the mind-body yep. is, is one yep. unified self. And I just fell in love with that somatic sensation of, like, that was the meditation for me. Yep. That was going to the gym was my way out or way in yes. to just connect with my body and, and its movements. And like, I remember just like closing my eyes and just like, it was, a, it was definitely a meditative practice. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course, like being an 18 year old male, it, there were certain parts of it, which were like egotistical driven of yep. wanting to be physical and yep. have that nice appearance. I'm sure any male would resonate and, and females female. as well. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and having like a bit of body dysmorphia yeah. and almost yeah. like having that obsessive, nature and it would go around and sometimes it would be driven by just that wanting to look good yes and then other times it was and, and that would never last though it would i'd go through that phase and it would stop and i might you know not go for a little while and then what would bring me back was just going and connecting with my body and waking up these parts that were dormant Mm -hmm. and that was amazing yes. therapy for me mm. and probably more so in the last five years mm -hmm. I've like diversified all the types of training that I do like training in the gym is, is something that I still do but it's not the main thing I love swimming I love running 
I think each of the different types of exercises you brings do some it rock climbing, isn't it? Uh, that was I've, I've been rock climbing once. Oh. <laughs> Boulder, okay. I was thinking of bouldering. Yeah, I, I was heard sore the other for a day week with my forearms. Yes, in the forearms. Uh, it was horrible. <laughs> okay. But I did like a few climbs. Right. Um, so the variety, um, you know, has also been of interest. I think it's interesting. You said of what was dormant. Um, to kind of wake up and whether that be in the, in the different muscle groups and I think you can liken it to as well our connection to what kind of is dormant or um, yeah not alive um, and you know I think I mean you've touched on it the variety um, of you know you're young very you're young um, but that over time you know the modalities um, can shift. I know some people, you know, run for, you know, from the beginning when they're in school all the way, you know, to the 80s, that kind of thing. But that verse, the versatility um, is, uh, I think, probably mm. what keeps an interest and your curiosity, you know, that nature as well. I was just talking to Anthony before, a mm. um, uh, really amazing person from Mind Medicine. He sure he is. We were just talking Did about. Did all this yeah. set up yeah, for us, so setup. he's... Thank you, Anthony. Um, he was talking about like the, the feeling when you're running and how much you can kind of work through. When you're running by yourself, you might not be listening to anything or you might be listening to some music or a podcast or whatever. But you start off with that like agitation of that stress that your body's going through and that stress is you know represented both in the body but also the mind. Yes. And you know we might be thinking about things in that stressful state, but over time you know, leaning into that stress and then there's this mechanism in, in biology called allostasis, which is our body's ability to change its internal state to adapt. Yes. Acutely adapt to the stressor that's mm. that's happening. It's like certainly like things like breathing practices put us in a state of stress, like talking about vigorous kind of yep. the Wim Hof method to my breathing style um, or even holotropic breath work. Um, and then you have things like, you know, ice baths and that's a stressor that we then can adapt. And I think and build resilience in some respects, building um, that and ad- adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Building that resilience and then almost like learning how to deal with stress, not just in a bodily sense, but in a mental sense of how stressful thoughts come into our mind. And then by, acutely adapting to those we're able to embody those properly and then almost see them differently but just going on with um some of the different practices yoga is something that i was probably a little bit late to i mean you're never late you can always start yoga at any age of course and i'm still very young as you said (laughs) um but 27 27 yeah um i probably started yoga when i was 22, I was going to say, probably been doing it for five years. The last three years, very consistent. Mm-hmm. The first two years were on and off quite a lot. Yep. Um, but what was fascinating about yoga is that you can go into yoga thinking it's going to be a wonderful, blissful practice and you just do these movements and just you just feel almost angers coming out of your <laughs> hip and then you it's move in this through. way then yeah. that is just like triggering all these different emotions and i'm like wow like emotions can really be stored in 
some strange locations and then other times mm-hmm. you practice yoga and it's just the most blissful uh, I just feel super flexible and you're doing this and that and then other Shavasana, times now you're just yeah. you're completely <laughs> relaxed the mind is at peace the body at peace yeah mm. it's again often the wild the I think the um just reflecting as well in terms of just from the modality of yoga, I mean, I, I had a back um, injury because I fell out of a tree, and so I had a um, compressed um, vertebra um, when I was, uh, what was I, 22, um, and I'm 50 now. Um, but the of what gets you into um, yoga uh, or a modality, like, we're, you know, is, is interesting in itself because um, – you know, when you're learning to walk again, you know, as an example for because I, I couldn't walk that I came into yoga from a rehabilitation, you know, point of view. The rest of it, um, you know, little did I know, you know, some of those gifts and gems. But I mean, I was just, you know, teaching earlier today. And as an example, the, you know, getting onto the mat is sometimes the hardest mm. um, posture. And we talk about that. I think that um, I guess I wanted to just hear from you in terms of do you the connectivity between mind body um, breath um, uh, as well as the connection to someone else's energy you know whether you're in a you know uh, a crowd you know do you like crowds more than um, do you like crowds as in, like, festivals crowds. or, you know, that music or, you know, sporting events. Do you like, um, do you like, like, of, yeah. high energy, high energy crowd, lots of that, movement? Yeah. yeah, I actually do find peace in the chaos. Nice. I find that, you know, in the busy street of Melbourne or whether it's going to a big sporting event yeah. or for whatever reason, there's a lot of people all in one place for a music festival or event or anything like that. It's almost like this appreciation, uh, there's a wonderful word called sonder. Have you heard of sonder? Yes. Which is like the recognition that everyone is, you know, experiencing their own thing and have their own stories yes. and reasons yes. to why yep. they're feeling certain ways. It's like almost that that's a, a state that you're in when you're just immersed in people that you've never met before. Mm-hmm. And just the energy that you feel in your body from, whether that's created from ourselves or whether that's just that resonant energy from people around us i would say it's a combination of both but i think connection to others is in as much connection to ourself i just because i'm so inquisitive about the nature of reality and you know all we have evidence for is our own consciousness yes and we can only assume that other humans around us are experiencing the same thing and it's through that shared experience or believing that we're sharing an experience to make things feel special and, and feel connected. Mm. And you feel that sense of connection because someone else is experiencing that or you could be of this perspective of, you know, this one consciousness that is being pulled into various beings and different timelines and we can get very philosophical <laughs> here and you know it, but it speaks to the, the the oneness that we're all sharing this well i know that um i mean just on that um even in psychedelic assisted therapy some of the um i know at the moment it, it's an individual you know set and setting where they talk about and uh 
people um, going through the experience themselves with one or two, um, you know, clinicians, um, and that is there's connectivity in regards to there's potentially three people, let's say, in the room versus group experience with psychedelic um, assisted therapy, which is um, uh, has, um, you know, has its own uh, legality and um, where, you know, groups of people are experiencing psychedelics at the same time in a, from a set and setting point of view. Just wondering what your thoughts were on terms of not in a festival or that related to that, but in kind of the group dynamic of multiple people um, in a still in a you know cl- clinical setting. What your thoughts are in terms of being the only one who has had the um, the psychedelic um, yourself, or in a group setting whereby there would be um, uh, monitored and with let's say a guide, etc. What your thoughts are on that? Mm. As in, what would be more beneficial, or yeah, or no, just your thoughts? Are, are, yeah, others? I was just wondering. With I guess I was trying to lead from you know being in a group and the actual experience. Not you know, obviously when you're in a stadium or a uh, you know really large crowd or a big city and the dynamic, you know, the energy and the flow of energy and possibly some people can be very meditative as you know, like in some of those experiences. Um, and I just was relating it then to kind of the cl- uh, clinical application, whereas there's one person in the room, two people kind of observing, or one or two, which is what would be in Australia. Um, and, um, you know, like a group, you know, a group based and just the feeding off of one another, mm. etc. Yeah, I think there's... I guess the potential. Yeah, I think there would be slightly different benefits of, of both because... Yeah. I mean, a lot of people talk about certain depressive states and certain mental illnesses about disconnection and feeling isolated. Yes. And in some cases, um, if you were to take psychedelics by yourself and not really know what you're going into, you could feel even more isolated. So there's a danger there. Yeah, and when it's obviously administered in a, in a safe and therapeutic setting and you are in the journey by yourself but are being guided and and feel safe and secure, of course, then it would be a lot more about yourself and and just unpacking all of of that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would, I mean, I could only hypothesise about the benefits of being in a group setting and that shared experience Mm -hmm. and connection and maybe it's that loving connection that someone is missing or feel like is, Mm -hmm. is a way... Um, when they're they're not feeling too well, and and why they would want to do psychedelics clinically, or, or whether that's an, an option for them. So I think, as kind of the research develops in this space, we'll be able to, I suppose, pinpoint more specific ways of like feeding it into the the Western medicine yeah. and 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 the world at large, and that whether like specific symptom clusters like feelings of disconnection or loneliness might be better in a group setting mm. and whether there are certain practices that it would be better by themselves. Um, maybe it's just like this, you know, anxious thought that's just you're stuck in your head about something and that's becoming debilitating. So I would say the more research that is progressed will 
better understand how these dynamics mm. might change therapeutic outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that. Well, and as you say that the, um, I mean, I think that yeah, the development of the research in this space will, will be really interesting. Of what it is, you know, even with the set and setting, um, you know, the the music as an example. If you have the music um, on, which was um, part of the um, you know protocol, uh, the the different di- yeah, the different aspects that lead to um, healing. Um, and I guess I was the reason I was bringing that up is, and it's just it's an interest area of of mine as well in terms of where the research will um, hopefully shed light on how uh, group dynamic um, versus even two people versus, you know, one person um, with, um, with clinicians. So um, yeah, just, I think it's that interest of watching that space. Um, Do you, I wanted to ask how, like just at the moment, what are you doing? What do you? What's your next um, endeavors for yourself of your time? I know you're going to be doing your masters at the moment, which I don't know if you had. Um, if yeah, maybe I didn't. Shed light. I don't think you've told us. No, your, been... your ego hasn't been. You know, <laughs> <laughs> your ego's been gone. De- you know, oh, no, it's, it's pretty it's, strong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but just tell us a little bit of um, what you're what sure. you're up to. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole reason why I'm I'm finishing up my medicine is nothing to do with not wanting to do it at all. I want to bring you back, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. okay. But it's yeah. I think the my kind of personality type is constantly pulled, and curiosity is what I'm pulled by yep. at the moment. It's quantum it's physics, and yes. I'm just obsessed with like quantum mechanics because I truly think that if we were to understand, you know, the nature of particles and subatomic particles, that we can apply that to ourselves mm. and combine that with our understanding of our biology and neuroscience, which is what I'm studying. So I'm studying my Masters of Neuroscience, okay. um, doing that part-time mm-hmm. and really enjoying that I've decided part-time because I have so many other interests and yes. it's often a capacity thing for me deciding on what I want to learn about it in a given time. I've I've always had curiosity streams and I've never worked a full-time job because I'm scared that I won't be able to have these outlets of these streams of curiosity and I don't get paid for pretty much any of them, but I feel so much pleasure and drive to learn more about certain things and mm. um, neuroscience is, is one of them. Okay. Um I guess it stems back to me just wanting to know truth and and understand myself better and and apply that to myself and to teach others about it too. Um, I have been teaching at a bioscience education centre for the last five or so years. Um, I love teaching. I love that aspect of connecting with a younger audience Mm -hmm. who don't know as much about you know biology and science and then you can draw these scientific concepts and then go are you school age school age yeah so i teach yeah. from age 11 to 18 okay cool. so from nice. grade 5 to year 12 okay so it's a nice range of students um i feel like i'm slowly wanting to teach more older 
students or not even students, but students of life, people, um, and more people my age and, and people older than me, not necessarily teach, but just converse and yep. exchange knowledge and information. So I feel myself, you know, leaning towards um, teaching and learning older ages. Um, so, yeah, I, I teach there, um, studying, and always have a number of different projects that I'm yeah. working on that always have a, a theme of health in some capacity. Um, how I got involved in mind medicine was through a podcast that I started a few years ago and, and interviewed uh, Tanya here, and then she wanted to get me involved, and all of a sudden I've done this podcast <laughs> for the last do that. Like, she's three good years. At that. She's good at roping people in, <laughs> yeah, that's she, for sure. Well, she's knows, yeah, she, she saw um, what uh, use it would be for mind medicine and I think again coming back to your listening and that um, obviously that now I know that uh, kind of deeper curiosity in a way that enables the listening um, and really interested in other people um, which is wonderful. Um, Do you have uh, what are your hopes uh, in the kind of psychedelic um, assisted therapy space do you have is there anything that you would say kind of, oh, we've already talked about a little bit of the group, you know, dynamics, but hopes for um, how it's going to be implemented in Australia or um, just hopes in general for psychedelic-assisted therapy? Yeah, so pretty much all of the projects that I'm working on currently are aligned in the sense that health needs to be approached holistically and combines the latest scientific evidence with age-old wisdom and um, information that's been taught throughout cultures and things through like rites of passage that cultures use psychedelic therapy for, um, found the plants were able to shift their state of mind and, and understand better about their place in the world and the universe and we're able to connect people and communities. And so a lot of my work and, and project work is figuring out where I can develop some program or educational platform that combines science and philosophy and also biotechnology wow. that we get kind of... We, we need to be able to use biotechnology to help inform us about our health but we need scientific and philosophical practice to improve our health and health practice is always something that that we um are needing and as it goes with psychedelic therapy i really want to make sure that it's not just a medicine that you take home and you take it and it fixes you if you take it at home by yourself, it would probably do the complete opposite. Mm. Um, but I'm really wanting to make sure that it's recognised, not just medicinally, but spiritually, because I think that's what we're missing in society at the moment is is that connection to self, connection to reality and the universe and that appreciation and understanding that we don't know why we're here and we don't really know where we're going and it seems that through 
a psychedelic experience, it opens a window to, because we're in that state that normal thought patterns and emotions aren't manifesting in their Mm -hmm. typical way, Mm -hmm. that we can see reality or existence as it really is and not just what our mind makes of it. Because, you know, we're receiving information from the world and trying to make sense of that. And over time, that sensation turns into a perception and, mm-hmm. and perceptions turns into a narrative. And then the narrative is how we're telling ourselves about what we are and who we are and our place in the world. And that gets very cemented. And to break that open again and see the raw data that we're receiving from the energies that we're connecting to Mm. then we're able to truly recognize that we don't really know anything about life we can only observe the patterns that nature have and try to understand the the attractor patterns and energy patterns and that's where biology and chemistry Mm. and physics all Mm. come into play we can observe Mm. how things behave on a large scale or the smallest possible scale but we don't really know why that is there in the first place. And I feel that psychedelics is a way for people to... Siri's just telling me... Siri's what talking <laughs> to you, Tommy. That's happened a couple of times today. That's really... She's really listening. Um, what were you going to say? Did you want to finish? Or did no, it? Okay. Um, I... I was... Um, there's a book, I don't know if you've um, heard of it, called The Awakened Brain, um, and it's by Lisa Miller... Um, and it's interesting because this, it made me think of just the title, The Awakened Brain, because there's so much you started talking today about, uh, obviously, well-being um, in terms of modalities that um, um, have been useful, cultivated um, well-being, but also, you know, through curiosity and also tools that have been useful um, when things aren't, you know, going um, so great. Um, and yet... <laughs> I think that the, um, I guess that the notion of reality, because at the same time, you know, here we're, you know, we're talking about um, connection as an example. And our version of reality, I have a lens and it's different from your lens. We're connecting through communication. And of course, there's all, you know, kind of silent, um, nonverbal communication as well. And um, you mentioned about the, spirituality in terms of the spiritual aspect that kind of can bring us perhaps to a, uh, I don't know, maybe a greater understanding um, and a greater understanding of who we are and um, uh, not necessarily why we're here, but at least contemplate those questions of um, how do we um, have a life um, that has meaning, um, has fulfillment, and not in a necessarily a traditional way or non-traditional way. Um, and some people from experiences, I guess, is experiences with different modalities um, and, you know, meditation being one that you've talked about in exercise and um, just a general curiosity. Do you, how, how do you think the therapy itself or psychedelic-assisted therapy, the future of psychedelic-assisted therapy will impact the world? 
big question. It is a big question, but I, I, yeah, I don't think it will solve everything, but it's definitely a very, very good start because we tend to make decisions for ourselves and not think about the impact that it has long term because we don't have the capacity for that. We're so much inside of our own heads and our own interests are what is most important, as they should be. But for most people, there isn't that capacity to think long term about, okay, the earth is burning mm. and the human, human species is destroying everything in its path. And we're creating all of these wonderful, innovative things that make our life tremendously easier, but we're destroying the connection to our original place. We, we are nature. There's no separating ourselves from nature and we're, we're becoming separate from nature. So psychedelics seem to re-invite that feeling of connection both to other people, to, to nature, to reality as a whole. To yourself. To yourself. And all of those are one and of the same thing. And without feeling that connection, there is no reason to be worried about anything other than the body that you're in right now. Mm. And so what I see is that not only will people feel better and understand themselves more and understand what they really need mm -hmm. because it's hard to make sense of emotions and feelings when you're in the moment of, of those things. But if we allow the space to understand where those emotions are coming from, we can take action and in our lives to improve our lives, to focus on health, to connect with other people and do all of those things that we know are healthy, but we can't get there. And I feel that, Psychedelic therapy, whilst it might be one directional at the moment in the sense of you'll need a, a clinical diagnosis for you to be treated, for there to be a medicinal space and, you know, it's very, very linear in that sense. It's like, okay, you have a spectrum of ill health to good health. Where do you sit on that spectrum? Um, you've got depressive symptoms, you've got anxious symptoms and you have um, traumatic symptoms and so, you know, you're comorbid with all of these things and, okay, Let's try psychedelic therapy so we can put you up this scale. But I think all of us have these emotions. Some are stronger than others. Some persist longer than others. And we're always trying to move up that scale of good health and trying to be as healthy for as long as we can. For But, you know, ill health will come and it's how we are able to take action and, and, and deal with those situations. But I think psychedelic therapy is a wonderful stepping stone towards a holistic approach to health, which it could be the gateway for people to be more aware of their internal state and then to be educated about how to integrate health practice into their life so they can not just rely on psychedelics to get better, but that to be a, a, a way to understand themselves and what their body needs. Yeah, and I think that um, you, you know, we we started the session as well talking about you know well-being or wellness. You know, is this broad, you know, a broad base, and we, um, it isn't a static, um, you know, it's not a static experience. Um, I know that from 
kind of trying to connect internally. Um, I know that even and and connecting outwardly um, with our environment, um, the I guess an opportunity as well is just recently um, where generally speaking um, feeling kind of in a well state in general or kind of are balanced or a feeling of contentment and I was having a, a time whereby there you know patterns of previous um, uh, times when I haven't been well in a kind of a well state, some of those patterns were creeping in. And the reminder from someone um, who, you know, I respect a lot, you know, was a friend was t- saying, and you said this too today, of, you know, there there are um, uh, some chronic illnesses and, you know, psychedelic-assisted therapy in, initially for treatment-resistant depression and for post-traumatic stress disorder Um and yet you've really talked about the whole kind of spectrum of 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 well of well being because we can be in ill health at times or have a period a short amount of time, whether that's a day, a week, a month, um, or debilitating um clinical um you know, debilitating clinical um challenges or clinical disorders. Um but it seems as though you're also talking about that um, the future holding um, an opportunity that psychedelic assisted therapy may be able to intervene on a in a much broader way, not just for ill health. And I think it's a um, an interesting uh, topic to continue to speak about, and hopefully the experience with um, post-traumatic stress and treatment-assistant disorder is, you know, that this is the beginning of um, something that isn't a magic bullet. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to have um, uh, what you would even um, maybe say is um, a completely positive experience because that's not a human experience anyway. Um, But that could make an impact, you know, in the greater um, the greater good um, of society. And um, I just wanted to um, also kind of mention that sometimes, because you said about the spirituality um, potential, um, sometimes when we have um, ill health, or um, I know for even for myself, when I have not been well, or that from depression or from um, anxiety in a more clinical um frame, um, that the connection goes coming back to connection. Um, sometimes for me hasn't even when I feel very disconnected. Um, and when, you know, the patterns of behavior are, are not wanting to see people not, um, you know, so not going out or having, um, low mood and low, um, motivation to do anything, angst in the chest. Um, these are just some of my familiar patterns, some of these th- aspects that I'm just talking about, even being paranoid about certain um, kind of general things that I'm not usually paranoid about, we all have element aspects of all these um, uh, kind of this pattern. And sometimes I feel like our whole um, diagnostic, um, the framework that we have in psychiatry even in terms of what constitutes, you know, clinical 
ill health. Um, you know, I, I wonder if there is a future for another way of classification of human behavior along a spectrum that, um, I don't know, might have a more... Um, might have more of an impact um, than we are having at the moment. And I think the statistics are just they're so high. And, I mean, being one of those statistics myself of having, um, you know, been diagnosed in a certain way, I wonder if there's a whole another way of um, kind of approaching ill health. And the, I lastly, I think, um, which I wanted to tie in here, is that, um, Lisa Miller in The Awakened Brain, this book. It's a good book for anyone um, interested. When you have, like, a, a debilit- if you're having, let's say, a depressive episode, so someone who has been clinically um, diagnosed, as an example, she talks about that we are most primed at that time to actually have a spiritual experience. And when you brought up spirituality, and how psychedelic-assisted therapy's impact in that space. Um, I wonder if our whole view around mental ill health has um, almost negated a pathway toward, you know, um, kind of spiritual um, evolution. And I certainly, I don't know if that's completely ego-driven, but I'm saying that... um, because I certainly in an ill feeling ill health um, at times or when I've been in ill health, I don't feel like I'm having a spiritual experience. I'm scared as hell and I have fear um, and, you know, fear of doing anything or even that, you know, I'm going to be able to be hopefully here, you know, in those even from a suicide ideation, that aspect. And that's quite common. It's, it's quite common for people who aren't necessarily depressed Um that that can occur, um, and I just wonder whether we can, I don't know, make a different impact um, in this space, almost like as kind of a, how we view how we view spiritual um, experiences. And I guess finishing with psychedelic assisted therapy itself, um, is there anything? That I guess lastly to ask you um, for those people who are seeking psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, seeking those therapies, um, I guess, do you have any advice for people who are seeking to um, have psychedelic assisted therapy? Who are feeling very unwell? Just anyone. Yeah. You could maybe start with, um, if you don't mind, with the um, with what's obviously at the moment the legislation change, which is with um, you know treatment-resistant depression and um, PTSD. But then, if you wouldn't mind, maybe commenting mm. um, the broader application. Yeah, like we've kind of discussed, um, and the ideas around medicine, modern medicine, how you have a drug that treats your ailment or your symptom Mm. and people craving or wanting psychedelics because they want to fix themselves is not always the best mentality to go with. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, everyone's going to be different in, in different 
situations about where they're at and, and what they need in any given time. But I suppose if a psychedelic experience is, is what you're after, there are other means of, you know, entering yourself, mm-hmm. so to speak, that you don't need any pharmacology to do for. Yep. It takes more work. It's things like uh, holotropic breath work, which what Stanislav Groff had put together when uh, psychedelics became illegal to study and research. Mm-hmm. And he designed that to, you know, induce a psychedelic state without um, having to oh, take psychedelics. And and there can be times when we are in almost psychedelic states. And I mean, the word speaks to what it is. It's mind manifesting or the mind being revealed. And what psychedelics do is they allow us to see inside of ourselves and understand what's going on and sometimes that's beautiful sometimes that's incredibly scary and daunting so for the people who are really wanting to do psychedelics or or are wanting to feel that experience there are a multitude of other ways to to get there and you know you can have psychedelic experiences through breathing practices through exercise um through connection with other people in, in certain environments, um, meditative practice, certain spiritual practices uh, are leaning towards that. Um, but it's hard to give any direct yeah. advice. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, as it becomes more available to people in a clinical sense, that down the track it would, you know, open up to like a licensed setting where you know, you might have a period of, you know, months where you're not feeling well and you just need to connect or I think that having a community aspect to it might help Mm. and drawing in, um, like having a safe space where it's not just about a psychiatrist sitting with you, it might be your mum or might be a brother or it might be a friend or a family member and then you might have, you know, a, maybe a spiritual leader, a meditation teacher sitting there with you to, you know, guide you in, in a particular direction to really confront the things that aren't serving you. Which in, um, I mean, obviously historically um, that's how it, you know, in in some countries that's how it was, you know, it was with, you know, family members or the community um, uh, members that were... Um, spiritually aligned in some way so um i think that um the i know that for um you know for myself my um my sister who had been very sick for a long time um uh, ended her life in november um and uh, we were looking just on the the last day. I was speaking to her, looking at psychedelic assisted therapy as an opportunity. She lives in America, so we were looking at Oregon, um, one of the first states to legalize or where you can um, have those uh, that experience. And she wasn't to a point; she was our, um, where she could um, face even the you know s- something that might you know she had been. Um, so disillusioned by um, so many different types of treatments that didn't help, but I think bringing um, kind of the uh, the opportunity that psychedelic assisted therapy can make 
to um, just the statistics of suicide itself, um, which I know is that absolute pointy end, um, is something, um, you know, it's very, it's very serious. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that your um, experience um, interviewing, you know, you know, some of the the greatest leaders, the scientific leaders, um, and the movers and shakers in this space um, has um, helped the. Um, it's just helped uh, kind of facilitate that now we're you know seeing it legalized and you know it was too late for my sister, but um, the you know as I had just said from a pharmacological point of view and um, taking medicine, which um, I've taken medicine you know um, from pharmacological medicine, psychiatric medicine for a long time, trying sometimes to, you know, not do, um, not have it. And when I was 45, try, I decided, you know, went to India and decided I had all the, you know, the well-being practices f- to actually not need pharmacological um, treatment. Um, and for some people that has worked, for me, it didn't, um, you know, it didn't work. Um, but I, the last thing I, of speaking to you around um, which I, I, it will be back to connection, but I w- just the notion of disconnection, um, and I feel we've kind of come full circle here, but when you feel so disconnected um, in the mind, as an example um, for myself, when we talk about mind-body, you know, kind of mind-body integration, um, when that default mode network, as an example, or parts of the mind that um, you can't... Um, trust at times um or parts of us we've been talking we've talked about but that um dick schwartz who came up with i think it's internal family systems but the parts we have so many different parts of us right we have so many um uh you know we have the protector um who's the harsh critic um and you know that's been internal family systems has been you know used a long time but getting to know our different parts and i don't mean that in a like a schizophrenic sense of um you know, multiple personalities, but we have these different parts. And from what you talked about at the beginning, and we're talking about connection, when you feel disconnected, um, the notion of connection for me, this is, um, was funny, it was kind of funny. The, when I couldn't connect with people, I could connect with two things. And one was the, um, my dogs, the, I have two golden retrievers. Beautiful. Um, and I'm bringing this up for purpose, um, and it, the sea, in the sea. So something about I could I felt disconnected with everything else, but those two things. So none of which were humans, which I thought is which is interesting. Reflecting back, and um, I wonder in terms of finishing our talk tonight with around connection and disconnection, um, um, the. There's no direct pathway, um, you know, one path, one way um, doesn't fit all. But I know in this podcast series, um, we're trying to look at ways in which micro steps, small steps, um, variety, using curiosity, um, anything that can um, cultivate well-being. And maybe our disconnection or feelings of disconnection, you know, like I said with that Lisa Miller, maybe sometimes can be 
it's like we're literally, you know, the heart breaks open kind of thing. And there's um, then become comes greater understanding. But um, we haven't even used the word suffering in our talk um, today, and which is surprising because I talk about suffering a lot. <laughs> um, but in that notion of life is suffering in the most Buddhist, wonderful sense that we we embrace that that is part of who, you know, as, as humans we are. Um, and that notion of life is suffering. And, um, I wondered if you, um, kind of had any last things you wanted to kind of communicate, but also around that notion of disconnection, um, connection and, um, yeah, anything else you haven't mentioned that you think you'd like to. Mm, Firstly, Thank you for sharing the story with your sister. Um, when I'd heard that you were picking up the pieces of the podcast, I was very eager to meet you. Just to, you know, I've, I've uh, worked on this for a couple of years and wanted to make sure that I felt comfortable and that it resonated very deeply. And we connected really deeply, really easily to begin with. Mm. And that just brought me a sense of peace and you're already being so open and vulnerable about your experiences with, you know, long-term mental health challenges and your sister uh, committing suicide only a few months ago or last year, mm. not even a year's past. Mm. And to be taking these steps and wanting to connect with other people who have similar experiences, um, whether that's their personal experiences or, family members or friends and I just want to say thank you for firstly taking that extra step like neither of us are, are getting paid to do this I <laughs> haven't been paid at all and it's it's a charity with a commitment to ending or reducing suffering in the world and that sense of suffering through which we all experience sometimes for longer sometimes mm. less mm. is a signal from our body to change Mm. and change is inevitable in our world Mm. there's no avoiding suffering it's the skills that we acquire and the practices that we acquire to be able to understand the suffering where it's coming from and to take action to resolve it Mm. not to ignore it but to take action to resolve it and i'm sure as a big motive for you to do this podcast is that you feel that that is one way for you to come to peace with your sister taking her life in the sense of maybe you can use this vulnerability and this impact that you've had and that lived experience mm. to other people who can then resonate and, and connect with that. Because my perspective of being curious about mm. you know science is, is completely different. And whilst it's served its purpose in that scientific recognition, which was essential for psychedelics to be implemented into Australian medicine, which it now is, which is a wonderful thing. Now to divert our attention into understanding really why it's not just about this chemical that changes or these connections. And whilst it's fun and interesting and curious to learn about and apply to ourselves and and how our brain works and how biology functions and physics and all these things that are occurring within us and around us constantly to really connect on that deeper level of how these medicines can impact us, 
how it facilitates that healing process and it's not just about fixing chemicals, it's about changing lives. And I'm really settled that you're picking up my pieces because of my time capacity and I just feel a sense of accomplishment and I'm very excited to see how you are approaching this and I just want to say thank you for you know being open and and taking charge and and taking action where you felt it was needed well I mean I think um thank you I appreciate those words I think that um we said at the beginning we've spoken before about um having Sometimes an interview is one-sided, um, and I actually felt like your questions when you would speak to the different scientists and the professors and the movers and shakers in this space, that you did allow um, your own, um, well, certainly your own curiosity, but you were, um, it was a conversation. Um, and I think that, you know, lots, there's so many podcasts, you know, out there, and um, I think that Going back to that, I think I, at the end of the day, also you want to be deeply listened to. And it's, this is, seems such an egocentric way of, um, which I just, I had thought that I did want to be sharing that. Um, but you think that is not necessarily just in a, um, when it, with a clinical application. Um, you know, this is the um, human experience. Mm-hmm. And I wonder again, about that kind of ill health and that um, you've really been able to bring us that uh, solidarity. It certainly is not in pieces. You have brought kind of the solidarity of um, the underpinnings of um, um, of modeling um, of what psychedelic-assisted therapies clinical application is, and maybe even beyond that, but the clinical application. And um, it's hard as well to be in that um I know for myself, as in terms of pharmacologically thinking, there is one way that's going to give us well-being, and so it isn't just a pharmacological aspect. It isn't just a psychedelic-specific, um, you know, medicine, and even the different ways and modalities that we've talked about. But if they could just be breadcrumbs of um, something that um, people can feel a resonance and a connection to people speaking about being about the human experience. And, and that is a really broad base, but at the same time, the application of psychedelic-assisted therapy um, is certainly, uh, I think, uh, can actually be a step toward um, spiritually better understanding who we are coming back to your the truths in terms of what is absolute truth i don't know is there any other absolute truth that you want to mention i think absolute truth is the only truth there is it's that we exist that we exist we have evidence for ourselves that we exist and couldn't we you know and this is you know where i'd like to um just move the um you know, uh, allowing the just a little bit further in what we can do than just we exist and you too. You know, having that contemplation, um, I think keeping that alive, um, and you know the the contribution that you have made to mind medicine um, has 
in some ways um, not been stated, you know, enough, I don't think. Um, so I guess it's just, and I have, you know, on behalf of Mind Medicine Australia, uh, deep thanks for you uh, interviewing so many of the um, almost, and we don't want to say famous people, but who are really making a difference in this area. And I hope that um, with that baton, um, now to the next aspect of lived experience, but I really hope as well that it um, is around uh, how we don't just have one, this isn't one facet, it's many facets. And um, I hope you'll come back. Maybe we'll do a duo um, <laughs> You're trying to draw me back pod- in <laughs> online, so we're just open. We, who, if anyone really wants Tommy to come you back, and there's a three-way um, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, congratulations on um, the 26 episodes you did. Do all the background work, all the um, the front and back end, um, and just um, it's wonderful to see that your curio- curiosity is um, very alive and well. Thank you very much. I appreciate those kind words. And I think, yeah, um, I'll always be curious.